Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Jonathan Reynolds is an executive leadership coach and owner of Mindful Life, Mindful Work, Inc. Described as a leadership development company, Jonathan's organization helps corporate executives find ways to improve team performance and workplace culture through mindfulness practices. But is it possible for companies to become mindful when emphasis is often placed on meeting the bottom line? Should mindfulness be used as a tool to increase performance at all? Today, we try to answer these questions and unpack what it means to be a mindful leader and mindful organization. It's my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Reynolds to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, wonderful to be here, Fabio. Thank you for having me. What is an executive leadership coach? Thank you for the question. It depends. People define it differently, of course. In my experience, it's a coach that focuses on leadership sensibilities and capabilities in the executive space or in the corporate space. And by that, I mean someone who's really working on leading others. So they have some direct reports and then they have others that are they are accountable and that are accountable to them. This has been your career for some time now. What things have you learned about people in executive leadership positions? Well, I think that I've learned a lot. When I started coaching, I didn't start with executive leadership coaching. I started more with focusing on career coaching and things like that with individual contributors. And one of the things that I've learned is that leaders, for the most part, aren't really trained on managing systems and relationships of people. You know, it's sort of the old model. They're taught that the leader knows it all or should know it all. And so one of the main pieces of my work over the years has been to sort of demystify that and that a leader, a good leader, a mindful leader is someone who recognizes that they're embedded in a system and they don't have to have all the answers. And that might be a little disappointing initially to the ego, but it's really useful and comforting and and truly a relief to a leader to recognize that they're in it to solve it with their team or their company or whatever sort of the ecosystem that they're embedded within. Uh, There's a lot of specifics in there to unpack, of course, but generally speaking, I've learned that leaders need to learn that their work is a shared goal, not, not a solo goal. Are there common challenges that senior leaders face? There are. I think a lot of them are related to what I just said. I I, I think they're sort of taught that they need to uh, have all the answers. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of senior leaders at some recognized companies and some version of where could you go get this answer when it's a systemic or it's a relational answer because they're working with, let's say, leading a direct report. 
And they're trying to figure out how best to maximize that direct reports value or skill set. So many leaders seem to try to be trying to figure it out on their end of the equation all by themselves, which of course is an impossible thing to do, whether it's a professional relationship or it's a personal relationship. The nature of a relationship is we don't know the perspective of the other unless we ask. And so a lot of the work is really basic stuff and really difficult stuff because it's about being vulnerable. It's about trusting that it's okay to ask the perspective of the other. And again, so many leaders are taught that they're just supposed to be sitting in a room all alone making executive decisions that are going to affect the bottom line for the better. So a lot of the work that shows up is get closer to your teammates. And that doesn't mean getting personal in details or into people's lives, but it does mean getting personable. I make a, a real important distinction between personable and personal. And I think that a lot of leaders could benefit from being more personable and connected, approachable, accessible. It would serve their direct reports well, and it would serve them well. And so a lot of the work sort of hinges on that foundation. You mentioned mindful leadership. Can you define that for us? I don't know if I can define that. That's a, that's a tricky definition. I think it's someone that has some self-awareness, that has a capacity to look inward before acting outward. And in so doing, moves from a deeper, more balanced place rather than reactionary, responsive. Uh, we've all heard that rather than reacting, respond. And I, I think that at the core permeates the systems of relationships. The capacity to be in our own embodied experience, it's the tuning fork metaphor. It, it, it has a resonance that sets others at ease. And they know that there's movement from a deeper place rather than just trying to figure it out with a clever mind, feeling it out. And of course, it's a balance between rational and emotive. But I, I think mindful leadership needs to be holistic leadership, has to really include all of those things. I'd like to delve into that a little bit further with specific examples, but I, I want to go back in time a little bit. You developed your mindfulness practice at a fairly young age. How did a boy in small town Wisconsin get introduced to mindfulness? The short answer is the way that I think most people find some self-development practice, and that is my own suffering. I was unhappy. I didn't know that there were ways to live in the world that could make it more enjoyable, more awake. And so I got very curious. You know, I, I saw consciousness go one direction, and that was mostly down. Spent a little time bartending after college and saw consciousness go one direction every night. If it can go one direction, it must be malleable. It must be able to go the other direction, too. But nobody was talking about that excellence or that cultivation or development practice of awareness, at least no one in my circles. And so I went looking for that. I was hungry for a better way. And so, yeah, I got very curious about personal development, started reading a lot around those subjects. And really, that was the foundation. I studied biology in undergraduate studies. And, you know, some seeds require a really massive forest fire to crack them open. And I, I, I think I needed that. And, and I think I got that with my own personal suffering that it was just lots of discontent and was looking for a better way. How did you discover it? So you had your inflection point, you're going through the suffering that you're going through, not being happy. What was the door that opened for you? 
You know, it's interesting. I, I looked in the mirror and I wasn't the sort of person that I would want to be friends with. I, I, I just had a real honest moment. And so I thought, well, who do I want to be? Like, who do I want to be friends with? Who do I want to be connected to? I need to be that sort of a person and discover those elements in myself. And initially it was, I, I mean, I, I sort of labeled it along the way because I didn't know what was really unfolding. And we none of us do in the given moment, of course. But I, I really looked at it as developing my feminine side initially. And so was going to the reading sort of pop psychology and self-help books and spiritual books and all sorts of books. I was going to the library every day, probably for a five-year period. There were times that I was reading a book a day. I was on the path. I was on the project of trying to figure it out in a deep way. And, uh, you know, whether you call that a calling or just trying to make sense of difficulty, I had a suspicion that there was another potentiality. And that's what drove me initially. You mentioned biology, but you also studied philosophy and psychology. You practiced psychotherapy. What attracted you to coaching executives? A few things. One is all of those other disciplines have a lot of parameters around them. And I was really looking for a discipline that had a little more flexibility and freedom, a little more of a blank slate. I also recognized at a certain point that life is really short and precious and that I wanted to extend my sphere of influence in the greatest possible way. And so I looked at a few possibilities. I looked at working with children, connecting with beings early and hopefully helping them avoid some of the pitfalls and so they could start integrating sort of their own awareness earlier. Or I looked at those that have sort of a sphere of influence themselves which is the work world. Those that sometimes are responsible for thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And so that was ultimately, it was sort of an economy of time choice in many respects is, oh, if you want to put your influence somewhere and have it have the maximum result and have the biggest ripple effect, where do you put it? And the work world is a really nice option. You founded Mindful Life, Mindful Work, Inc. in 2011. What is the mission of your company? What does it do? I think ultimately the mission is to help others. Well, I mean, on the website, it says we you know, address the intersection of self-awareness and team performance. But why is that important? Well, that is important because I think people should be able to be themselves at work and not compromise their professional life or their personal life to be successful professionally. You know, ultimately, I saw so many folks and I still see so many folks that keep their lives, their personal and professional lives separate. And to some extent, that's important. Of course, when we're in different roles, we need to be different people to a certain extent. And yet, if we can't bring the best of ourselves to our work, the company suffers and we suffer and we get home depleted and we need to recharge because we weren't ourselves all day long. And so we come home to be ourselves. And that just didn't seem tenable to me. Ultimately, to leverage, whether we call it conscious capitalism, but to say to folks, no, your ability to produce value is the reason that you were born. And one of the ways that you produce value is professionally. And that should just be an expression of who and what you are, not some version of yourself that you have to pretend to be to have a job. Why is it that people feel like they can't be their authentic selves at work? That's a very interesting question. 
I think part of it's systemics, part of it's historical. They've sort of been taught that they're a cog in the wheel and they need to go be this thing. And, and maybe it's partly role descriptions. A role description, of course, says these are the qualities that we need. And then people try to be those things. But what I think people ultimately don't understand is that role description exists only because the company doesn't know who's out there. They have to give some starting point for the conversation. They don't want just that list. They want a human being that can show up and make it even better than that list. And that's been a lot of my career coaching over the years, actually, is don't get hung up on the list and the job description, even if you don't have any of those things, but you think you could knock it out of the park in that role. Show up, have a conversation, show up as a person rather than a piece of paper, rather than a resume. I, I think there's a lot of things systemically in there. There's sort of an economy of time around how hiring happens and these sorts of things. And so because of that, the people, the person and the personality and the personability get drawn out or sort of seep out if we don't bring it ourselves. And I think that we've all been willing participants, not conscious participants, but willing participants in letting that be okay. And I think COVID has said to all of us, that's not okay. It's not okay to be treated like a piece of paper or a list of responsibilities. A few years ago, I went to a conference. It was an event that focused on LGBTQ professionals. And I was there and I went to a panel discussion and it was all about what you're talking about, the importance of being authentic in the workplace. And I think for a lot of people, the reason could be fear. After that conference, I went back to work and I decided to, not that I was concealing it, but I decided to be out officially in the workplace. I really don't know the wide ranging impact that it had, but what I do know is that because I was authentic, it allowed my team to be authentic. I, I think you're absolutely right. When we shine, we give others a permission to shine. When we share our imperfections and everyone says that, oh, let's let the team see your humanity. But if the company's sending messages that you shouldn't let the team see your humanity, well, then you create a substrate where even if you're saying the right words, people aren't doing it. And it takes that sort of modeling. It takes that sort of embodied, I'm going to do it, even though it's a little bit scary. And I'm going to do it because I value myself, because I love myself, because I care about myself enough to do it. And by doing so, you give others permission to love themselves. It's so essential and so overlooked. What kinds of organizations do you work with? Been all over the board. We've worked with some of the largest companies in the United States, and we work with companies all over the world. And we've worked with very small companies. I mean, I helped a small um, CT scanning company here in Marin County get started. And so sometimes it's small business coaching like that, and sometimes it's larger engagements. Sometimes it, it's often tech companies just because we're situated in the Bay Area. So even though most of our work is delivered remotely, tech seems to find us. We're also really interested in conversations around scale and scaling, and that tends to be a, a tech-driven conversation. It ranges, and sometimes the engagement is extensive, like a whole sales team gets trained, and sometimes it's just a small department or the C-suite, and it's six people. It really depends. It's one of the things we pride ourselves in is being in the conversation around what's useful. Is mindfulness a tough sell to senior executives? It's interesting. I mean, I didn't use the word mindfulness in my work until about three or four years ago when we acquired a Boston-based company that all they offered was mindfulness proper. I've sort of, sort of shied away from mindfulness because I, I, I saw it becoming the fad that it's become. 
which I think isn't bad, but I wanted to be more, you know, the word mindful can get interpreted in many ways. It can be careful or attentive or kind even. And so I was interested in people saying, well, what do you mean by mindful? And then having that conversation, then seeing if there's real alignment, real match. Mindfulness itself, depending on who you talk to, of course, has lots of definitions as well. But it's also sort of become this thing that people get a weekend training and then they go deliver mindfulness. Whereas at Mindful Life, Mindful Work, most of our team members have at least five or 10 years of practice. Some have as much as 40 years of practice. I'm somewhere in nearing my third decade here. And I think that really is that capacity to sustain attention over time, I think is, I love John Kabat-Zinn sort of non-judgmental definition, but I think there's a continuity piece and a sustaining of attention piece that for me, really, anybody can be mindful for an instant. But I think that capacity to lean your propensity or your disposition in that direction over an extended period of time not in some rigid way or holding way, but you know, really embed you in that perspective and that way of being, I think is really essential. So to answer your question, we don't sell mindfulness. We get in the conversations around mindful approaches. And then sometimes mindfulness proper is something that's useful to add. And oftentimes not, I would say most times not. So what sort of mindfulness approaches do you use with executives and teams? It often has elements of mindfulness proper. So for instance, when I'm coaching a senior leader and they say, oh, um, I know that's the wrong thing to do, whatever it is, I'll ask a follow-up question. How do you know that? And they might give some mental rationale or we ran the numbers, but I'll keep asking like, what in your direct experience lets you know that it's not the right thing to do at this time? Ultimately, if each of us really drills into our experience, at some point, it's a body-based cue. We feel it somewhere. It's tightness in the shoulder or our stomach feels unsettled when we think about moving forward or something like that. And so a lot of the work, not always, but a lot of the work sometimes gets to this sort of body directed. What is the wisdom of your experience? Where does that come from? How do you know that you know that thing? Because if it's not a fact that you can look up on Google, if it's something about experience that you know, it's where in your experience and many senior leaders have never been directed to that. They've never been asked, how do you know that you know? And so sometimes that is just a doorway into a whole new world for leaders. I'm going to draw on the wisdom of your experience. Can you define mindfulness based on your knowledge mm -hmm. and practice? For me, it's that continuity piece. It's the capacity to be continuously aware of yourself in the context that you're embedded over time. So there's this overtime component. I mean, the traditional word for mindfulness, which in Sanskrit was smirti and in Pali was sati, translates literally as things remembered. And so ultimately mindfulness is remembering, but it's remembering something very specific, which is remembering the present moment, remembering that what is here is of the greatest value. And so that capacity to remember to remember over time is, I think, good mindfulness practice. One of the aims of your organization of Mindful Life, Mindful Work is in part to improve performance. Why do you see performance as a core objective? For a few reasons. I think performance is the currency of businesses. They want to perform well. They want to maximize. And so some of these words I want to clarify, like 
For instance, optimal performance doesn't mean the highest possible performance. It means the optimal performance. And that might not be the highest possible. It might be more sustainable. Like if you can do 100 widgets an hour, but you're going to like have a stroke when you're 45, why not do 75 widgets an hour and have no problems throughout? So what is optimal and, and what is meeting the performance goals? And, and for me, it's, it's sort of the good to great model, right? To see a longer end game than the bottom line on a quarter or a year. And, and I think businesses are going to go through this, and they are going through this growing pain around what does it actually mean to be a successful business? Does it mean to just have great numbers? Great numbers are often vacuous. You know, there's, there's nothing behind some of that stuff. It's just inflated to be inflated. And so I think to really have a sustainable business and a successful business and to, and to have great performance isn't to have the highest possible numbers. It's to, well, what, what is the goal of anything? What is the goal of us having this podcast or being alive or being here on earth? I think it's to support each other and to live our best lives and to live peacefully and to have everybody have enough. And so ultimately, I think if we're doing that, and leaning performance in that direction. And that's where the awareness piece really comes in. When we're aware, we're aware of where we're doing harm and where we're not doing harm. We're aware of needs that we might not otherwise be aware of. We're aware of how important it is for our people to be treated like people rather than interchangeable pieces that don't matter. We don't push that agenda. Awareness takes care of it. When we're more aware, eventually we're more aware and we make better decisions based on a more complex metric and system. Some people listening to this might say, hey, I am already performing well or optimally. And in fact, I'm working more because of COVID. As a result of COVID, many people feel like their workload has increased. They're working longer hours they're working from home, they're no longer going into the office. What do you say to those people that might think that they're already performing at a high level? I would say that each person is their own best evaluator. And that for one of the person in that situation, it might be the perfect match, it might be working splendidly. And for another person, it might be escaping difficult other stuff. And that's why they're working so much. I mean, who knows? And that's where a self-awareness practice is so important is because ultimately no external evaluation can match an internal sort of sensing and self-evaluation. And that's where the awareness is so important as well is in, in teams, if you really want to draw the best out of your people, cultivate their own awareness of themselves, because then they're going to know what really lights them up rather than being sort of externally motivated. We all have external motivations. But when that flips to external things causing internal action, when it's internal is the prime mover or the initiator, then the external lights up in a new way as well, because uh, we're moving from that deeper knowing. It's an interesting thing, performance, because it's often dictated by senior leadership managers. There could be situations where employees don't have the ability or power to say no to say, look, you know, I'm at my capacity. I can't work any more than this. What is the guidance in that scenario? Those are, those are tough cases, right? Like it's, it's up to each person and member of the team to have their own awareness to see to what degree is this workable or not for me. And if it's truly not workable, then it's time to change roles. 
maybe leave the company, maybe find something else within the company. But each one of us, you know, it's it's like any relationship. It's like a personal relationship. When do you stay and when do you leave? When is it over? There's no sign out there. There's no book you can read. There's no checklist you can take to say, oh, this is an easy answer. It's a tough decision. And in those tough decisions, it's even more important to have self-awareness because you want to make it from your deepest values and purpose and meaning and priorities. So when you make that decision, you're not looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life. You know you made it based on what was true for you. It's interesting because there have been a lot of people that have changed roles and in fact left organizations to pursue personal interests, their own ventures. It's termed the great resignation. Do you think corporations failed employees during this period of time of COVID? Yes, most definitely. I And I think it, it started before COVID. I mean, in my career coaching work, it's almost impossible to get a raise at your current company these days, a real raise. And, uh, you know, you got you to gotta leave your company and be a hotshot at a new company to get the big bump. Why is that the case? Why do you have to do that? And it's a huge loss for companies because all of that thought equity and knowledge walks right out the door. And then you got to start from scratch with a new person. I'd like to see companies recognize that their greatest value is their people and give them big raises when they deserve big raises and big promotions. A person shouldn't have to leave a company every, you know, now it's a year and a half to three years to continue to grow their career. And I think companies are missing a huge value add for their company. You treat someone well, they'll work their butt off because they're happy, because they've been treated well. Top performers are almost always internally motivated. They have a vision for their career. And if the company's in the way, the company's expendable. It's sort of like shopping for a house, right? When you're shopping for a house, you have lots of houses you could go buy. When you're selling a house, you only have one that you have to sell. You're stuck with the one you're selling. Employees, I think, are recognizing that they're shopping for jobs and they can go get any job, even in difficult markets. Again, if you're really providing value, it's almost immune to it, to a difficult market. Not, not entirely, but if you're really showing up and you have a vision for the value that you provide, I don't think people should worry about changing jobs. Depends on the industry, of course. Rewarding employees is a major piece. Autonomy is huge. And then I think one thing that's really critical is trust and collaboration. So to what extent do you try to influence organizations to change their culture towards one that is more built around trust and collaboration throughout the organization and with all roles and positions? No, we haven't had an opportunity to do that much extensive work at a cultural level that sort of permeates across roles in that way. I would love to have more opportunities to do that. I think you really have to find the right company that is already engaged in those conversations. We've been in some of those preliminary conversations around really a company that wants to make a cultural shift. But for the most part, the companies we're working with are more looking at the performance piece. They like the self-awareness angle. But what you're describing is sort of a, a dream job, really, uh, a company that's really ready to say, hey, we recognize that this has gone from healthy competition and performance to a little bit unhealthy and toxic. And we want to add, and I think you've touched on a really key point around when you're working on cultural transformation, sort of ethos, uh, you really are working with what is unseen. 
and yet has sort of degenerated just because of entropy, basically, because things that aren't supported positively eventually sort of go in a not so great direction. Those are sort of the ideal conversations because it's about building those directions and those practices and those understandings around what matters that I think ultimately will take each company to a whole new level. A company's got to want to do that. They got to want to invest in that. We just haven't seen yet that that would be a major investment for almost any company. So do you think that companies can become mindful? I do. I think that it has to be seen as a practice. So for instance, we've all been through a training everyone was high-fiving at, and three weeks later, it means nothing. It's just gone. It's like, oh, that was cool. We had fun. That was fun. We had a day together. It's basically meaningless. Without some ongoing practice, behavioral change doesn't happen. Just like any practice, you don't play the piano once and say, I'm going to be a great piano player, or you don't eat healthy once and say, I'm healthy now. No, there's this recognition that exercise and health and brushing your teeth are practices that you got to do a little bit every day. I think if a company doesn't recognize that this isn't a one and done, this is, it needs to be a forever practice, frankly. Nobody loves to hear that, but like it needs, if, if you really want to make the change, make the change. And that's going to cost money, whether it's a retainer based relationship with a company like ours or some other sort of thing, or you have internal champions sort of driving it. But I, I, I think that's the piece that isn't quite yet there. There are champions doing little projects and pods and sort of volunteer groups and things in lots of companies, and that's having some impact. But until a company says, oh, we're going to have this on the budget, the annual budget, this is a line item. It's going to be a major line item. It's not just going to be like, oh, like an apologetic, like on the last page. No, this is like something we value. Until that happens, change is not sustainable. And you mentioned that earlier too. There's so much emphasis on the bottom line and cutting costs. So how do you reconcile that? Either a decision maker or someone at the top has to recognize that this cost is not a cost. It's not an expense. It's an investment. It's like when you buy a car, you drive it off the lot. It's worth half as much the moment you drive it off the lot or what, whatever the number is. You buy a home because it's an investment, because it's equity, it's growing. And so that's the shift that has to happen around sort of mindful approaches and awareness approaches in companies is that they have to see it as an investment. Any company that's done these sorts of things recognizes over time that they actually grow because of it. Customer relationships are better. Internal relationships are better. Products come out better because there's less mistakes. Services are delivered better because there's more integrity. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's a more sustainable model, but it's hard to see that at the beginning. One of the trainings you offer is called Coach to Lead. Can you explain what that training delivers? It trains leaders how to coach. It basically helps embed a coaching or a growth mindset, which I think is very similar or aligned with a mindful approach into a company culture. The reason we actually uh, partnered with a, a third party to deliver Coach to Lead, someone else created Coach to Lead, a, a friend of mine, Tom Rausch. Uh, what we like about Coach to Lead is it's, it's a great form to deliver these sorts of conversations and everyone who goes through it has coaching capacity. It's delivered in a flipped classroom in a blended learning format. And it, again, it's scalable. And Tom has sold it to uh, some of the big uh, management consulting firms as well. It's a good one. What advice do you have for senior leaders who are struggling with challenges within their organization, who have exhausted their own options in terms of how to improve aspects of their organization 
be it culture, performance, any number of things. What advice mm-hmm. do you have for them? Part of what I love about this work is we come into a real world situation and then it becomes very clear what is needed over time. Most senior leaders have been trained pretty classically and sort of gone through what it means to be a leader. They've gone to the right, you know, had the right undergraduate degree, had the right graduate degree, got the MBA, you know, or did whatever was needed. And so, okay, you're official now. You've got the certificates and this says that you can do this. My suggestion would be that that's a great foundation. And what actually takes you from good to great is your own self and relational awareness. So some sort of cultivation of self-awareness practice. I really like meditation. It's not the only one. There's lots of things. It can be walks in nature. It can be dancing. It can be poetry or art or whatever a person does as a regular practice to access a fuller version of themselves. That ultimately is everything that Mindful Life, Mindful Work, and that I personally stand for, is when your self-awareness develops. And again, I can speak from my personal experience. In, In my early 20s, my list of things that I wanted to get better at was getting really long. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was one thing that helped all of these 45 things? And of course, self-awareness is that thing. It helped all 45 things or however many there were. It enhances creativity. It helps thinking outside the box. It helps knowing our values and our priorities. It helps with creative problem solving. It helps with the relational capacities that a leader needs to leverage his or her team. I I don't know how a leader does it without it. I mean, and they don't do very well, actually. They're sort of at mental collapse. Most leaders are so stressed out because they're trying to figure it out like a math problem. And systems of people are not a math problem. Does self-awareness require emotional intelligence? I I would say all of that is related and could, in certain contexts, be said to be the same thing. I think when we're self-aware, we recognize that we're complex beings. And then emotions are a part of that cocktail, a part of that soup. And so the short answer is yes. It depends on how someone holds that. And everyone will hold their own practice of self-awareness differently. I used to say that, oh, it was developing my feminine side. You know, then the word holistic showed up. Then, you know, I mean, so again, we use language to sort of point to this thing. Well, ultimately, this thing is this sense of sort of embedded in our own awareness and this sense of wholeness and satisfaction and not needing more. And then everything that we do, rather than an effort to get something or feel complete, is an expression of completeness, is an expression of already feeling complete. And then our work in the world becomes infinitely creative because it's not trying to accomplish something. It's trying to share something. So practically speaking, I'm an executive supposing I'm an executive and I'm really cerebral, how do I switch from being cerebral to emotional? Very, very challenging. Many of us have been taught not to be emotional, to be very rational, almost robot-like. And that's why it's a practice. You know, we've all heard the furthest journey is the journey from the head to the heart. And it's true. That's where a lot of body direction. And so many folks that are very cognitive or very intelligent, you know, they live their whole life from their neck up, basically. And when something happens in the body that is uncomfortable or injury, they're sort of surprised. Like, how did that happen? I didn't even know there was anything down there. I think, I think body-based practices are a really useful starting point. 
things like yoga or tai chi or of course there's a long list things like aikido and all sorts of things anything that brings us in our body i think that's why things like running and physical exercise are really important and i would suggest picking a sustainable practice that is very deliberately a body awareness practice so sometimes exercise or you know nothing against weightlifting and running i did lots of those things when i was younger and yet if i wasn't and i wasn't doing them consciously as an awareness practice they just sort of made my body more fit and tighter and so that's where you know things like yoga are more on the radar these days what insights can you share after having worked with different kinds of organizations over the years well i can share that it's always workable even when it seems like it's impossible even in the worst of situations it's workable a little shoot of grass will poke through the cement every time it doesn't matter how fleshy or soft it's going to poke through and so i say that in this context because things can get really stuck in companies where it just feels like it's the end of the world stuck and we've seen some i actually sort of like working in those situations because people are sort of like at the end and the end is just another new beginning i think awareness sort of is a wonderful container for entering the forest and by the forest i mean metaphorically a place that's dark and scary but also sort of enchanting and so going in there and really like recreating ourselves and you know it's beginner's mind which is sort of a common phrase like to see with familiarity those things that we've seen before but also with a freshness with a with a brand newness that's what any relationship or system relationships ultimately needs to thrive it needs to not be constricted by its history you recently founded the mindful professionals network can you explain what it's about the mindful professionals network is a community network of people that want to live and work more mindfully and to have a community to develop that in themselves it's a wonderful place that's driven by events. We've been having networking events and classes and some community workshops. We were even begin experimenting with in-person events in various locations. And then there's asynchronous dialogues. We have a monthly theme and weekly mini challenges, things that prompt people to engage in the monthly theme. But it's really a place where anyone who wants to be in the conversation around becoming more mindful and applying it in their lives and work can show up and and find. And and some people show up and they just want to focus on the work, and some people show up and they just want to be personal growth. It's really a great melting pot and we're we're under a year new so we're uh, we're just getting started. We got a couple hundred members worldwide. It's a beautiful thing. What does resilience mean to you? Resilience is that knowing. This is going to sound a little strange maybe to some of your listeners, but for me resilience is that knowing that we're indestructible. Is that nothing can annihilate us. To know that is to be embedded in awareness. Can somebody harm this body? Sure, of course they can. Can difficult situations arise in my life? Of course, they always do. That's just the nature of life. But to know that there's pe- this peace that is untouched, that is beyond conditioning and because it's beyond conditions. And uh so for me that's ultimately what resilience means. What are your practices of resilience? Well, I think in this moment it's our conversation. and i don't say that tongue in cheek i think that in any given moment if we're embedded in our awareness if we're doing our best to be embedded in our awareness um, we're practicing good resilience are there formal practices i do of course 
seated meditation, yoga practice, both of those nearly daily, time in nature, time reading, the things that nurture us, the things that help soothe self-care practices, anything that helps you come home to yourself uh, is resilient. Space is infinitely resilient in my experience. One of my highest values is free time, time that has nothing, there's nothing planned because that feeds me. And I think that feeds most people. And I think that it's it's a commodity that can often get encroached upon. I, I think those things, but then again, doing our best in any given moment to not deplete. So for instance, while I'm talking to you, I'm not giving you 100% of my attention. I give myself part of the attention too. And I think most people don't know how to do that because they're so used to sort of ejecting into the experience and leaving a shell of themselves that's depleted. I just don't do that. That doesn't seem like a skillful option. And how do these practices benefit you? Infinitely. I couldn't imagine. At this stage, I've practiced now since the late 90s. I just couldn't imagine life without them. I'm so grateful. It's unfathomable to me to not practice them. That doesn't mean I practice every day. That doesn't mean that there aren't lapses sometimes. They're on vacation or, you know, you forget and all, all things happen. That doesn't mean I don't have bad days or act unkindly because I'm stressed out and, you know, I'm, I'm human. I always have a home to come home to in awareness. And just knowing that makes everything else doable, more doable. How can people contact you if they want to reach you? All over social media. LinkedIn is sort of our main hub of operations, but we also have a website, mindfullifemindfulwork.com. They can also find the Mindful Professionals Network at mindfulprofessionalsnetwork.com. Don't be a stranger. Uh, we're all in this together. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Fabio. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of transformative stories and beneficial practices to guide you on your wellness journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience. <laughs>